Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Join me in Proverbs chapter 6. We read Proverbs 4 this morning to kind of set the tone. Proverbs 6 is going to help us sort of dive beneath the surface, get in the weeds a little bit today of our subject matter. We're in a series that we've been in for several weeks now called Release the Arrows. And if you're watching from home or the... don't know who I am, or if you're a first-time guest, I'm Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, be, be sure, if you don't mind, fill out one of these blue cards. Let us know who you are. We'd love to get a chance to meet you. We're not high-pressure people. We just want to be able to reach out, know that you were here, and, and be ready if you need us for anything. We would love to uh, just be there for you. Uh, and one of the ways that we want to try to be there is each and every week and opening God's Word and, and sharing the wisdom that it has for us. And over the last few weeks, around this idea of parenting. Release the arrows. That's the title of the message. Learning from God's Word. How do we view our children? How do we raise our children? How do we teach our children? Understanding that probably the greatest gift outside of Jesus that God gives is children. And I'm not just saying that to parents. I'm saying that to anybody with a child within your sphere of influence. If you're part of the body of Christ, you bear some responsibility for this as well. And we've been using the metaphor given to us in Psalm 127 that says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So this idea of pulling them out of the quiver, putting them in the bow, and sending them out into the world for the greater of glory of God to do that in a way that, that fits their giftedness and their particular way that they're going to glorify God. His expectation that they will do those kinds of things. And we've already looked at several questions related to this. What's this look like in early childhood? What's this look like when they're still in diapers, when they're still keeping you up at night? What does this look like later on when they hit puberty and they're in their teen years and they're driving and they go off in that car by themselves for the first time and everything about what could happen freaks you out? Today, I want to broaden the, the scope a bit beyond just merely the developmental stages to ask the question that should be asked at every stage. It's a broad question and then a narrow question. And the broad question goes something like this. What do we want to leave behind for our children? The the, the term we normally employ for this is the term inheritance. Proverbs 13, 22 tells us a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Think about that. Not just to your kids, but what you pass down to them is so valuable. And again, obviously, he's not merely talking about tangible assets, that that by the time your grandchildren come of age, there's something they benefit from. And they can recognize, hey, that came from my grandfather. That came from my grandmother. That's the the idea that we're getting at here. A good man leaves his inheritance to them. And so normally we think of material wealth, we think of real estate. Uh, Another term we often use is legacy. In the legal profession, that term is narrowly defined as like tangible assets. So when Amy and I pass away, there should be, God willing, money, property, autos, those kinds of things. But when our culture uses the word legacy, we we tend to think more broadly. And that's what I want us to do today, beyond the, the, the tangible stuff. 
How, how can I do this? What do I need to leave behind? What are the specific principles of raising up our kids? What do I teach them that will help them well? None of that really means a whole lot if it's not connected to a broader end. And so the most important thing you can leave behind for your children, let me suggest an answer to that question by introduction. I think it's wisdom. How do we leave wisdom to our children? That's the other question. It'd be easier to just leave money, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you can, your employer, most of you can just take that right out of your check. You'd never miss it. It'd go right into their account, and then when they emerge as an adult, they've got all this money that you left them, and you, you haven't even had to think about that. Leaving wisdom is just a little bit more difficult. How do you embody it? How do you teach its value? How do you teach them to pass it on? And more to the point, and here's that narrow question, how do we make sure we cover everything? Have you thought for a moment about just about the vast array of things we have to teach our children and how much it seems like it's, that list has exponentially grown just in the last generation? And how much that can, if we let it, instill a fear in our hearts that we're going to miss something. When I was in my 20s, I used to do a good bit of fishing. I had a really good buddy, childhood friend of mine. We grew up together. He got his first fishing boat. And we got that thing backed off into the lake. I looked, he was good, he gave me the thumbs up. I put the truck in drive, I pulled it over across, uh, out from the boat ramp, found a parking space, and when I got out of the truck, I heard him screaming frantically. See, it seems like in the midst of this long checklist of things that we were supposed to do, from the air pressure in the tires in the boat trailer, to making sure the life jackets were there, to making sure the steering mechanism was working while it was out of the water, a quick crank to make sure the thing was going to run. Everything we had done, there was one thing we had forgotten. See, fishing boats have this thing in the hull called a plug. And if you don't Put that plug in. The reason it's there is because you have a good day on the water. You have a good catch. You have a lot of water in that boat. And if you leave that water in the boat, it's going to damage the boat. And then you're going to have wet equipment. Then you're going to have a wet fisherman. And that's no fun. The problem is you got to remember to put that sucker back in because if you forget amidst that long checklist of things to put the plug back in the boat and then you put that boat in the lake, the boat will literally try to assume all of the water in the lake. And that's what happened that day. And we almost lost it. We almost lost it. One big mistake. You ever felt that way with your kids? Like, I think I got everything. I think I've covered everything. Any of you list people, don't embarrass yourselves, right? But you, you've made a list and you're like, all right, these are all the things I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover this when they're five. I'm going to cover this when they're 12. I'm going to cover it. And, and how many of you know now? Maybe even they're out there as adults already. And, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to like, they're going to, run into something that I haven't prepared them for. You fear that? Yeah? Let me give you a couple things that will hopefully calm you down a little bit. Number one, your kids and mine are a lot more resilient than you think they are. They really are. And secondly, you and I have a guide to ensure that we equip them in every possible way. And what I love about Proverbs 6 is there's this checklist, if you will, embedded inside a father's advice to his son. I mean, what could be more relevant than that? And it summarizes all of the important areas that we should cover. Five of them. Five essential areas you need to make sure you cover with your child, really at every stage of development. So let me cover those for you, starting with this one. Teach them fiscal discipline. In other words, Teach them not to be horrible with money. 
Not to be, don't teach them physical, physical discipline. Verse one, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So what's happened is there's this real life situation that gives rise to more general advice on how to handle money. More specifically, dad's bringing up to his son the possibility that one day somebody with a horrible FICO score might ask you to co-sign a loan with them. And you need to tell them no. And we don't know the circumstances that gave rise to this. Maybe Solomon had just himself finished saying no to someone like this. And like a lot of us as parents, we have a, a, some experience and we handle it well. And then it occurs to us, wait a minute, I've got a 13-year-old. I've got a 17-year-old. I've got a 25-year-old. And I'm not sure they would know how to handle this. Let me give them a call. Let me sit them down. Let me take them to lunch. It's, it's as though he, he has this experience and then he goes, I've got to warn my boy about this. But the general application is a warning against any sort of financial entrapment. Don't get yourself financially entrapped. You know, I, the, the irony of this in our own day is when, when our kids get to the age, you ever notice like when they get to the age where they can understand this and this advice is appropriate, have you noticed that's also around the same age that we're entering into pretty major financial transactions with our children? We're co-signing a loan for a car. We're co-signing a loan for an education. It's a good time, isn't it? Both for us and for them to learn something of, of fiscal discipline. Now, Scripture does not, this will make some of you feel some better, it does not exclusively forbid debt. It doesn't do that. Mrs. Rainey and I have a mortgage on our home here in Shepherdstown. That is not a sin. Debt is not inherently sinful. One of the pictures we see in scripture when Paul writes the, the, his letter to Philemon. He says, if your slave owes you anything, charge that to my account. That was another way in the ancient world of saying, I've got a credit with you. I've got a tab with you. Just put it on my tab so that he doesn't have to pay it. And I will settle up with you later. That, that literally would be the equivalent of here. Here's a visa card. I'll take care of it within the next 30 days. I'm going to settle the debt. Debt is not wrong. Debt is, however, dangerous. It's a lot like other things in life. It's not inherently sinful, but it can bring a lot of harm to you if you're not careful with it. And so you want to teach your children how to handle money in the same way that you would teach them to handle other dangerous things. You wouldn't, for example, just thoughtlessly hand your eight-year-old kid a gun and say, go have fun. I don't, I mean, I know I'm in West Virginia, but we're not that dumb, right? Right? You deck them out like I did my boys. This is how you handle it. Point it away from you. Make sure it's unloaded. And even if it is unloaded, treat it like it's loaded. Amen? Right? You want to you do exactly the same thing with money. Debt in many ways is like alcohol. Most of you have some alcohol from time to time. A few of you have too much of it every time you have it. And you need to go cold turkey and just become a teetotaler because that's the only way that you're going to be able to overcome this enslavement that you have to it. Debt is also that way. In fact, according to NASDAQ, 
total consumer debt in February 2015, all right, so that was just a little more than seven years ago, was $3.34 trillion, okay? Now, that's not what the government owes. <laughs> we won't get into that today. That's just what you and me and your neighbor and my neighbor and everybody times 330 plus million. That, that's what they owe, $3.34 trillion. Actually, that's what they owed in February 2015. At the close of the second quarter of this fiscal year, 2022, that number had climbed from $3.34 trillion to $16.5 trillion. The average credit card debt in this country is $5,769. It gets worse. That figure includes those of you who don't carry balances forward. And, and there are a lot of you. We're, we're like this. We use a credit card for points, right? We, we charge stuff to it. We pay it all off the next month. We don't carry it over because we got better sense than to pay 28% interest, right? And, and so we, we pay it off. But, but then we're getting some benefit from that. How many of y'all are doing that? You are Visa's worst nightmare. You don't give them a thing, and they give you airline tickets at the end of the year. Isn't it great? right? So that's not wrong either, but here's the problem. That $5,769 figure includes you, which really you shouldn't count because you're not in ongoing debt. If we remove you from the equation and include only people who perpetually have revolving debt, that number jumps from $5,769 to $8,100. Our nation owes a collective $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. The average debt, once you graduate with an undergraduate degree, is now $37,000. You're like, well, is that bad? You got an education? Well, it kind of depends. If you have an education that's gonna prepare you for a profession, that's gonna pay you in excess of 75, 80,000 a year, really early in your career, you're probably fine. Otherwise, maybe not the best way to fund an education. Maybe take a little longer. Maybe don't sign those documents. Otherwise, it's just a bad decision. And so you want your kids to avoid that entrapment, and the, the way to help them is to give them the right perspective. That's what Solomon's doing for his son. In verse 4, he says, Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Stay vigilant here. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. That's colorful language, isn't it? Like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Give them the right perspective. See, here's the thing, son. Every time debt is presented to you, those who want you to buy that product, and debt is a product, are going to cast it to you in the form of easy payments. That's how most people see debt. I don't have to wait for something. I can get it now if I just borrow it, and I can make easy payments. And here the wisest man who ever lived is giving his son advice on how to handle money and the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, allowing you and me to listen in, look over his shoulder. And he says, be diligent. Assume from the beginning when you're on that college campus and they try to give you a free Frisbee or a free pizza or a free t-shirt, assume they're predators because they probably are. I mean, if you can get the free t-shirt, fine. But assume they don't have your best intentions at heart. They're trying to sell a product, and those products are predatory. Fiscal discipline might be one of the most critical needs of our emerging generation. So that's the question to parents. Can you teach them 
And of course, the first question in that is, how are you doing with all of this? How are you doing? And if you're not doing so well, don't leave with a burden of guilt this morning. Leave with the understanding, first, that there's no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. And secondly, the people of God in Christ Jesus, your church family, can offer you some help. We have financial peace classes that happen every single year, usually around the first of the year, right about February, because we know January is when the Christmas credit card bills come. And that's when that need is felt the most. Come and get in on some of that action. Get your own fiscal house in order. Set an example for your children. I, so many years ago, we, we had a government shutdown. I don't know if you remember that. And it was amazing to talk to families that were affected by that. And I remember one saying in particular, Pastor, we're okay. We have, by God's grace, been faithful to what his word teaches us on this. We have very little debt. We have plenty of savings, and we can last three months without a paycheck. Now, that is a legacy. Would you rather leave your child when you're gone three months' salary, or would you rather leave them behind the wisdom that gives them the capacity to live without three months' salary? This is fiscal discipline. Teach your children to do this. Start them really, really early. You can get these little banks that say, this is what you save, this is what you give, and this is what you can spend. And teach them that two and two don't make seven. Something really, really important to remember. Fiscal discipline is number one. Strong work ethic, number two. Funny how money and work are inextricably tied together in this text. Verse six, go to the ant, O sluggard. Solomon must, Solomon must have had a lazy son. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A little bit of fear right there. Yeah. You want to be poor? Yeah, then stay in bed. That's the way to be poor. What's funny is a thousand years after these words are written, the Apostle Paul will write the following summary of this wisdom. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, that's not very compassionate. Now, I'm going to tell you what's not compassionate. Allowing your child to grow up with a sense of entitlement to the point that when they become adults, they don't recognize that this is truth like the force of gravity is truth. What's compassionate is teaching your children not to have that, that sense of entitlement provided by parents who almost thoughtlessly become a little more than human ATMs. There's a story about two young adults talking, and one was like, I'm, I'm really concerned. I've got all this anxiety. And they're like, what, what's going on? He says, well, my dad goes to work. He slaves away. He pays all my bills. He's sending me to college. Mom cleans up after me. She washes my clothes. I'm 22 years old, and all of this stuff is being done for me. And his buddy said, what are you so worried about? It seems to me like you've got it made. He said, that's just it. I'm afraid one day they might leave. <laughs> Somebody raised that boy to think like that. Somebody raises their children to think about those. Kind of, I'm afraid 
they might try to escape. Well, that's kind of the idea. Release the arrows. Listen, if you have a child that loves sleep but hates alarm clocks, if you have a child that rarely starts anything and never finishes things, if you have a child that says later when they really mean never, that has big dreams but little to no performance or follow through on the execution, you have work to do as a parent. Doesn't mean it's your fault, but they're living in your house. That makes it your responsibility and mine. And, and the shift that needs to take place, what's interesting here, it starts with the most unsophisticated advice. Verse 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? Get out of bed. Right? This isn't wrong. Get out of bed. Now, are there times when a kid needs to Of course there are times when they need to sleep. You should not deprive them of the sleep they need. See their physician about the kind of sleep they need when they're at certain ages of development in order for them to develop well. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying don't let them sleep until 3 or 4 o'clock every afternoon. This is ridiculous. How long will you lie there? It's time to get up. My dad used to say, boy, you're burning daylight. Huh? You are wasting the day. Laying in that bed, he had another way of getting me up for school that wasn't so sophisticated. I, you know what he used? Anybody interested in knowing this? Tap water, yeah. Just a little cup, nothing. He didn't waterboard me, wasn't abusive. Wasn't, oh, he just, son, it's time to get up. He'd give me 15 minutes. And then... I feel something cold and wet. And I'm going to tell you something. You, you will get up. You know why? Because wet sheets and sleep don't mix. You just can't do it. And he was like, get, get up. Come on. It's time to get up. And then once you get up, emulate the ant. I find that interesting because the ant has two things that will help him survive and thrive. The first thing the ant has is intrinsic motivation. You see that in verse 7. Okay. They, they don't need a chief. They don't need a boss. They don't need somebody, right? Some of, you, some of you are at work. We've had staff issues like this before since I've been here. Some of you do this in, on the job, at work, and you may not have a job much longer if you don't get this, especially if the, if the economy continues to tighten up. I'm being micromanaged. We'll get it done without having to be told nobody will have to micromanage you anymore. How about that? The ant has intrinsic motivation, doesn't need to be told what needs to be done. The ant, secondly, has preparation. Verse 8, the work is done in sync with ways that will produce a reward. Let me tell you, this may be the most valuable thing that you could give your children in the age in which we live, because I'm just going to tell you, there is a whole lot of nasty, stinking, lazy in this culture right now. People that won't work, for any number of reasons. They don't like, I gotta go find myself, or I gotta go do that, or I'm not fulfilled in this. Well, look, while you're looking for what fulfills you, grab a shovel. There's stuff to be done. Grab a bag and put some groceries in it for somebody. Grab a sack and put some garbage in it and clean up the streets. Find something to do. The same book of Proverbs says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. Lazy, 
lazy. And I hate to admit to you, guys in my line of work can be the worst at this. I know this. I worked with 500 of them for 11 years. Most of them are godly men who love Jesus, love their churches, would give their lives, work endless hours, but there are just enough of them to make the rest of us look bad. And I really just wish they'd find another line of work. They come in at 10, they go home at 3, they show up on Sunday. When there's something to be done, they just kind of do this, right? And then, and then they wonder, what, what, why is nobody excited about my church? Because you're not excited about your church, pastor. Right? What is that? It's sloth. It's laziness. It's the kind of thing that produces someone who, yes, worth, infinite worth because they're created in the image of God, but in terms of their productivity, they're, they're just not worth much. They're not worth much. We've had people come to the church. I had a fellow pastor tell me that once. He said, I think the biggest mistake that, that some people make coming to work for a church, and we really got to be a lot clearer about this, is they think, oh, it's going to be just like volunteering, except now I'm going to get paid. Staff are in the room. Is that true? Yeah, they're all shaking their heads. Look at them right. No, uh-uh. No, there's work to be done. Why? Because Joel's a taskmaster? No, because the body of Christ is worthy. Worthy of people who will do more than work 20 hours a week when they're paid for 40. And we see this all over the place. We see it all over industry. Like I say, I saw it with 500 pastors. Not all 500 of them, but enough of them that it made me sick. So I know it exists in my area, but it exists across domains. It exists in healthcare. It exists in education. It exists in civil society and government. It exists in economics and finance. No work ethic. Give that to your children. I, I can almost promise you they will never be unemployed. And that's a pretty low bar, isn't it? Just show up on time, do what you're asked to do, when you're asked to do it, how you're asked to do it, be willing to do what needs to be done for the good of the company and not just a paycheck. That's a rare thing to find these days. And if your child embodies that, you're going to have employers fighting over him or her. Give them a strong work ethic. If for no other reason than what un, one unnamed grandmother once said to her grandchildren, the best place to go when you're broke is back to work. <laughs> Give them a strong work ethic. Give them fiscal discipline. But you know what? Neither one of those is worth a warm bucket of spit if you don't give them this next thing. Teach them to walk in integrity. Verse 12, a worthless person. See, some of y'all, you, you've been You've been raised in, in the religion of free market enterprise so much that you, you, you connect worthless with the work ethic. But that's not what Bible does. A worthless person, a wicked man, how are they described? By how much they produce or don't produce? No, this is how they're described. Goes about with crooked speech. Winks with his eyes. Signals with his feet. Points with his finger, with a perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Moms and dads, I want you to hear that last phrase one more time. Broken beyond 
healing. That, according to the word of God, is the end of the road for your child if your child is not taught and does not follow that teaching to walk with integrity. Broken beyond healing. Because what happens is they become a worthless person. Here's the warning to the son. The father is sitting with the son and saying, don't be a scoundrel. Every once in a while, you have to bring up to your children that there are bad things in this world, and those bad things are sometimes embodied in people whose example you want to make sure you do not follow. When you see what they do, 999 times out of 1,000, you want to go the other direction. I have told my children, don't be worthless, don't be a scoundrel, don't be a glob, don't be a vulture, don't be selfish, don't be a coward, don't, don't do that. There are people with certain kinds of personalities you do not want to emulate. That's the warning here. Listen, don't be worthless, son. Don't be worthless. Literally, the Hebrew term just means a man who is of no good use. Doesn't mean he doesn't have value as an image bearer of God. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't die for him. It just means in, in practical matters, what good is he? That's what it means. And, and he's characterized by two things, a crooked mouth, all right? Talks out of both sides of his mouth, says one thing, does another. Secondly, deceptive communication. Now, some people can't communicate their way out of a wet paper sack they're not competent communicators. That doesn't make them liars, okay? Just makes them bad communicators. This is someone who is intentionally deceptive. There's a wink, the pointing of the feet, that kind of language is somebody. This is, if you remember from years ago, this is the kind of person that debates the meaning of the word is. Or if you remember just a couple of years ago, this is the kind of person that uses a phrase like alternative facts, right? Someone who just, they, I don't care about the truth. I just want to win. I don't care about the truth. I just want to do this. I just want to do that. Over time, those individuals will erode trust, not just in themselves. They'll undermine the trust around them that's needed for normal and healthy social relationships. And the Bible tells us here that what motivates that behavior, it's a wicked heart that lacks integrity. Don't let your kids grow up like that. It's a wicked heart. Don't let them grow up like that for their own good. A state of whole and complete honesty and uprightness. That's, that's what it means to have integrity. We haven't gotten this right all the time, but I can tell you at the Rainy Home, there is no more, even to this day, no more severe punishment that will come down on a rainy kid than when we find one of our kids has lied to us or to anybody else. I mean, you... You can break something expensive, and there'll probably be a consequence for that. You can make a mess, there'll be consequences. You can disobey. We'll deal with all those kinds of things in different ways. The hammer comes down hard when you have been dishonest with us. And we don't do that because we're trying to be mean to our kids. We do that because of what God's word says. I look at verse 15 and I hear, I, see, I hear these words. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. I don't know about you, but I never want to see my children there. I don't want to do that. 
These, these verses are the reason why. Are you, are you modeling integrity in your house? Are you expecting? Do, do you, let me ask this question. Have you ever apologized to your children? When something went wrong, when you got something wrong, when you did something in the wrong way, you, you got they, they see all that. They see that do as I say, not as I do crap. And they're going to call that out. Because mom and dad, God has given you authority. That authority is not inherent with you. It came from him and he is truth. And if you're not walking in truth, your kids are going to see that. They may walk away from the Lord. They may walk away from the church. They may walk away. They certainly will at some point walk away from you or at least kind of keep a, a safe distance. Are you modeling integrity for them? Teach them fiscal discipline. Teach them a work ethic. Teach them to walk integrity in integrity. Number four, teach them to be sexually faithful. This begins very early with an appreciation for all of their bodies as good. I mentioned a book a few weeks ago, God Made All of Me. Right? Give them a good, positive vision of every part of their body, and then according to uh, the level of development and understanding, introduce their sexuality as an inherently good thing, but also warn them, just like with the work ethic and the integrity, son, don't be a coward, don't be a worthless person. Verses 20 to 35, you know what they're saying? Son, don't be a pervert. Because they lay out in graphic detail not only what kind of person you want to be in this part of your life, but who to avoid when it comes to seeking a mate. Verses 24 to 26 describe this specific situation as involving another man's wife. And Solomon says, don't, don't be that person. And don't let that sort of person bring you to ruin. In fact, he says something very, very shocking here. He says... Son, it's actually better to sleep with a prostitute than to become entangled emotionally and otherwise in an adulterous relationship. Now, that's pretty gritty, isn't it? Now, just so I'm clear, he is not condoning prostitution, okay? But the cost comparison here, verse 26, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Right? Both are sinful. Both will cost you dearly. The cost of an adulterous relationship can't be measured. So what's the answer? Well, let's back up one chapter. Proverbs 5, 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Likewise, we see this precedent established in Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, how in the world, in the world we live in, can we expect our children to embody that? You're like, well, what if my child doesn't find a mate? What if my child... Well, then they can be like Jesus. They're worse people to be like. Right? The church has stigmatized singleness like it's some kind of disease or something. 
That's what Sam Mulberry, one, one of my favorite Anglican theologians, who says, look, if we, Jesus Christ was the most perfect man who ever lived. He was never married. He was never involved in any kind of romantic relationship, and he never had sex. And so if we see those things as somehow essential to what it means to be human, we're calling our Savior subhuman. The issue is, if you're going to participate in this, there's a way to do it. How do you embody this? Look at chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Now, this is something that admittedly Solomon would blow big time later in his life. All right? Keep my commandment and don't forsake your mother. And then he went out and got 700 more moms at some point later in the future for the son. Horrible example. But oftentimes we can learn from the bad examples, can't we? You can stand in the gap and model and teach. Are you, are you modeling this in your home? That's going to look different for different people. I get that. But your kids really need a healthy dose of understanding that mom and dad like each other. No, don't just love each other. We like each other most of the time. Right? Several years ago, I came into the kitchen. It was one Saturday morning. You know how lazy some Saturday mornings can be. There was a fire already going. Amy was doing something at the sink. I reached around her from behind, got her in a big hug, kissed her on the neck. That happens often. But on this particular morning, she turned around and returned to favor. And uh, nothing inappropriate. Come on, people, get your minds out of the gutter, all right? But, but nothing, like nothing, it just, hey, I've been married to that woman for 28 years. I love her, all right? And so nothing inappropriate, nothing, nothing that shouldn't have been on display, but a little longer and a little more intense than the Saturday morning kiss normally is, right? until I heard the voice of one of my children, and I will not say who it was, who was apparently in the kitchen. Do you two have to do that while I'm eating? <laughs> Guys, that, that's, not, that's not wrong. That's a healthy thing. Now, some of you may go, well, Pastor, I've, <laughs> I've messed up. I don't know who I'm talking to, but for all I know, somebody's sitting here right now going, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here at the 9 o'clock service because my ex is coming to the 11 because I blew it in this area. What do I do? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean you don't need to live with the consequences of what you've done. If you're sitting at the 9, she's coming to the 11, you're experiencing those consequences right now. Sometimes big sin carries big consequences. I get that. But there is nothing that says there's no hope left for you or that your child, children, can't learn. Hey, don't, don't, don't ever do to anybody what I did to your mother. Don't ever do to anybody what I did to your father. This is the conduct. If you've already been there, done that, let the grace of God be apparent in your life. But those temporary consequences, let those things be plain too. Your children need to know that there are consequences as there should be for that kind of behavior. Be honest about that. I've got a pastor friend of mine over in Ellicott City, Maryland. Years ago, we shared our 
experiences in pornography with each other and, and how we had come to repent of that. And for him, it was, a, it was actually a very highly addictive habit. He was really open with his sons, all four of them. They're all adults now. They're all serving the Lord. They're all faithful to their wives. And I learned something from him. He's probably 10 years my senior. He said, I, uh, I told them about what I did and what I needed to do to make things right. And then I told them this, you want to find somebody with the character of mom. By the way, moms, is that actually true if dad were to say that about you? To look at your sons and goes, that's the one. You want to find somebody. She won't be exactly like mom. She's not going to cook like mom. She won't have the same skill sets as mom. We're not expecting her to be exactly like. We're expecting the character to be mom's character. You want to find somebody like your mom. And if you're hooked on the stuff I was hooked on, nobody with the character of your mother is going to want anything to do with you. Mom and dad, even in our brokenness, we can help the next generation break the chains of sexual sin, help them to be sexually faithful, fiscally disciplined, a work ethic that is strong, integrity that is impenetrable. And, and here's how you do all of that. Number five, teach them to fear the Lord. Go back to verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. The word hate gets tossed around a lot these days, like it's always a bad thing. I understand the sentiment. There is hatred out there. There's a lot of hate. There's, there's, there's hatred around race. There's hatred around sexual orientation. There's a, that motivates people to see other people as less than human. Yeah, that's awful and wicked and sinful. But I think what we've done with our play on language is we, we just label something as, as hate. And it, well, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Okay, this is a pre-warning. Son, avoid these behaviors because God hates them. Churches don't talk much about this anymore, about the fear of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, right in the middle of all the sage advice for a child, like the, like the, almost like they're sitting at lunch and there's this centerpiece on the dining room table that draws their gaze. And that, that centerpiece is a father admonishing his boy to ground every life decision he makes in the fear of his maker. Knowledge that the one who created you, has he loves you, he has expectations of you. Understanding that the, the, of the, the kinds of behaviors that are indicative of failing to meet those expectations. Let's read a few of them. Haughty eyes. That's walking around with your chest stuck out. Pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates that. We spend a lot of time emphasizing sins in the church and simultaneously de-emphasizing others. Did you know the scriptures 
are far more vitriolic about gossip than they were about the subject matter we took up last week. You know why? Gossip is more destructive. Far more destructive. Well, I don't agree with that. Meet me out in the lower lobby. We'll have a nice conversation. We'll have a nice chat. Yeah. Sowing discord among brothers. God hates that. Every time I'm tempted to go down the wrong road, Solomon says to his son, remember the terror of the Lord. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I don't want my child to, to fear God. Why not? I want them to love God. You can't love somebody you're afraid of? You can't love somebody that you revere and respect to the extent that they become the center of your life? I mean, I understand when anybody else in creation does that. that that's, that's called codependency. That's called gaslighting. God ain't other people. He expects to be that. And if you're going to follow him, he will be that. So you don't want to fear? Hey, I don't want them to fear God. Did you, who taught your children because they were like your pastor and not very bright, not to stare directly into the sun? Anybody? Oh, okay, there's, there's one other person. The rest of you just won't admit it. Why do we teach our children not to stare into the sun? Do we want them to be afraid of the sun? No, you teach them not to do that because you understand that even from 92 million miles away, it will literally burn the retina beyond repair and leave them blind. So why in all the name of all that is holy would you teach them that they don't have to fear the one who made that big ball of fire? Because if he's at the center of everything, now everything's, everything's reoriented, everything has changed. Teach them to fear the Lord because it's healthy to fear the Lord. It's the beginning of all true knowledge, but it's also the starting point for eternal life. All right? Much of Christianity in America is at a crisis point precisely because of this conspicuous absence. We want to tell people Jesus died for them because they're amazing and wonderful. Well, if he died for you because of how amazing and wonderful you are, why was that death necessary? Why couldn't he just send you a card from Hallmark? All right. What, how do we account for that god-awful bloody mess on top of Calvary? What do we count? Because you are not amazing, nor are you wonderful, and neither am I. And yet God makes us amazing and wonderful, just as we were intended to be from the very beginning, and he does it. But, but see, all that stuff, substitutionary atonement, all that, the cross only makes sense against the backdrop of the fear of a wrathful God. And so when you teach your kids to fear God, we're teaching them to take a first step in, in understanding their own position before their creator, to know that, that his hatred of sin and rebellion is so intense that it, it resulted in that bloody mess. That fear is the beginning point for understanding his love, that he would 
endure that. If it were not for the wrath of God and things about God that should rightly be feared by any rational person, there would be no need for the cross. If it were not for the immeasurable love of God, there would have been no cross. All of that fits together. The fear of the Lord will motivate your kids to see what is right, but they cannot do it without Jesus. See, that's the balancing point. Not, not that they're going to walk around afraid all of their life, that, that the God of heaven is going to zap them, but they have, with the fear of God, the starting point for knowing Jesus Christ. And when, when they are led by fear to embrace the love of God embodied in the, cro- the cross of Christ, they receive a righteousness from God and a capacity to live in the fullness of everything we see here in Proverbs. And you know what the great news is beyond that? If they have that, they're going to be okay even if I miss something. So give them that, parents. Give them that, grandparents. Give them that, Sunday school teachers. Give them that, folks that influence kids. Give them that, public school teachers. Give your children wisdom and ground that wisdom in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that, again, at the center of all of this is wisdom personified, who we know from the New Testament is the person of Jesus. Father, would you give us the capacity today to know him more, to trust him more, to obey him more, and in doing so to set an example for these little ones and these teens and these others that are coming behind us. And Father, we're not perfect, and they know that even if we won't admit it to them. So Lord, give us the humility to apologize, to back up, to backtrack, to do the things that are needed when they're needed, grounded in your truth so that they can have modeled for them the humility that is required if we're going to walk under your lordship and under your grace. And Lord, transform us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.